I love wine regions that are undeniably authentic and that always over-deliver. For me, that sums up Paso Robles. In fact, the first time I got on a plane in over a year and a half was to visit Paso back in April. Paso Robles sits in the heart of California's Central Coast. It's a big wine region that has many diverse microclimates, and it allows for a stunning array of grapes to thrive. In short, Paso Robles has range. They aren't known for just one or two varietals or wines. They make interesting blends from Cabernet Sauvignon and other Bordeaux varietals, Syrah and Rhone-style wines, Zinfandel, Tempranillo, and they even make beautiful white wines. Side note for you guys, my number one wine of 2020 was a Zinfandel Tempranillo blend from Paso Robles. Just saying. I also love that it's made up of over 200 family-owned wineries. We're talking salt-of-the-earth people who put their heart and soul into their wines. Paso Robles is special, but now the word's getting out. You need to check it out and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. You can learn more at PasoWine.com. That's P-A-S-O Wine.com. Are you looking for extraordinary new wines that have been tasted and approved by professionals with over 40 years combined experience? Then you have to check out 56DegreeWine.com. Joe Bimbry and his grand crew at the shop do all the heavy lifting for you by vetting every wine on their shelves. They scour the wine world, traveling often to France, Italy, Spain, California, all over the place, seeking out the absolute best values. And they keep that philosophy alive in selecting their artisan-made spirits and handcrafted microbrews. Whether you're looking for a baller, Barolo, and Burgundies for the cellar, or everyday drinking wines, they've got you covered. Even my favorite from Domain Bizcot is a staple there, so you know they have good taste. Follow them on Instagram, at 56wine, and go to their website, which is www.5656degreewine.com to browse the thoroughly curated selections. Use the code MJ when you check out to save 15% off your first order. That's 56degreewine.com. They try a lot of crappy wine, so you don't have to. Hey, I'm MJ Taller, also known as a black wine guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. Hey everybody, what's up? It's your boy MJ and welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today is writer, research journalist, and the first black full-time editor in wine enthusiast magazine history, Janae Gaither. Janae is incredibly passionate about all things wine. She has worked uh, vintages as a cellar hand at Ferrari Carano Winery in Sonoma and Endovin in New Zealand in, how do you say that? Gisborne. Gisborne, New Zealand. Um, She has completed her WSET Level 3 and is currently studying for her Master of Champagne through the Wine Scholar Guild. Additionally, Janae was one of four research journalists named to work on Karen McNeil's upcoming third edition of the Wine Bible. Welcome, Janae. Uh, Tell us what wine we're drinking this evening. We are drinking Eric Rodez. um, Eric Rodez's Blanc de Noir, which is 100% Pinot Noir from Champagne, of course. 
I'm a champagne like hound. Um, and it comes from Ambonay, which is a very prestigious village in the Montagna d'Arles, um, and the Champagne region. And isn't your like your handles like champagne and reservations, right? It is. Yeah. Holler. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if you've ever listened to the podcast, which you probably haven't because you're so busy, but if you have, um, you know, I like to start at the beginning. So uh, you grew up in Chicago, right? I am. Tell, tell I Born and raised? Born and raised. Okay. What part of Chicago? So I spent uh, some, my younger years on the west side of Chicago in the North Lawndale area, uh, aka the hood is what people call it. Um, I spent upper years in the Lincoln Park area. Went to like a fancy private school over there. Um, and then adult years, downtown, South Loop, Ravenswood area. Okay. Yeah. So what was it like growing up in the hood in Chicago? Because, I mean, my grandparents <clears throat> lived in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, came up in the Great Migration from yeah. the South. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think like yeah, my uncle went to Cooley High like hmm. back in the day. And uh, then they sent him back down to Georgia. So I know Chicago is like people on the East Coast, are like New York, New York, but like Chicago's pretty gully. Yeah, talk about that. I mean, talk about like they said just growing up. I mean, that what's that? You know, probably not a lot of wines from Ambonay no, on the West Side. Not at all. Um, to be completely honest, um, I was kind of like a fish out of water. Mm. So. My, we lived on the west side, Mm -hmm. but that was because my dad owned the house that we lived in. It had been in his family Mm -hmm. for years. So Mm -hmm. I think now he's actually been in that house. He's like, I don't know how old he is, 68, 69. Um, He's been in that house for 68 years. Mm -hmm. And so that is why we lived over there, um, just because it was a family home. Um, Which is not... Which is not common either, like you said. Like, yeah. Well, I don't know. I or, think, like, everybody on our block, uh, those houses are all very old. They're, it. like, 1800s uh, graystones, and most of the families who have lived on that block have been there 30 to 50 years. Okay. So we grew up with all those people. Gotcha. But my parents always wanted us to know that just because you live on the west side of Chicago doesn't mean that you are of the, the west, west side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And so even though we slept there and my school was like, my grammar school was half a block away, you know, we spent um, weekends at the museum and at the opera and, um, you know, at <laughs> Neiman Marcus. Like <laughs> I had a Neiman Marcus credit card when I was in high school. Like, you know, we... So they wanted us to know that, you know, this is not mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. There is a world outside of these streets. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the people that I grew up around did not have that same kind of guidance. Mm-hmm. So they mm-hmm. did think that the streets were the end-all, be-all. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, in our research, it shows that uh, you just mentioned Neiman Marcus and <laughs> that uh, you did enjoy going to fancy restaurants with your mom when you were younger. Yes, I so, did. So <laughs> talk about that. Yeah, that was We'll have I... a sip first. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. Thank um, you. 
Um, yes, one of the things that my mother also used to do with us, she'd save up money, and probably like once a month we'd go out to a fancy restaurant, and we'd dress up, and that's kind of where I fell in love with fine dining and like being catered to and um, fancifully fancifully plated food because it was just very artful, um, and that's kind of how I. I think I think where my love of food and gastronomy and everything that that entails comes from. It comes from that. Um, and she was also a very, very big cook, and we had a lot of family gatherings, especially for Christmas. So food was always very much at the center of the table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in our in our home. Wine was not, but food was. Yeah, you're right. She's, yeah. It's going to be either an easy show or a hard show. Cause I was, I was gonna <laughs> Sorry, ask you, I keep skipping ahead. <clears throat> I know, I was like... Brrr. Like, I've done my research. <laughs> and I know what I, you're gonna ask next. I apologize. <laughs> I didn't do shit. I was just hoofing it on my subway trying to get here. <laughs> well, I'm so glad you made it for real. Um, Me too. Yeah. So we don't have to ask was wine a part of that. So when did wine kind of come into the? Actually, let me back up. Yeah. Um. So you grow up. You know, your mom is exposing things because exposure is so important for all children. It is. It's yeah. so important, I think, you know. Um, where did you go to uh, university, college? Where did you, you spend those years of your life? Every school under the sun. Okay. <laughs> Literally every school under the sun. Um, Carleton College um, in Minnesota. Uh, fancy liberal arts college. Yeah, I've heard of it. I used to work with college. It's the only reason why I wouldn't know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Claremont Colleges in Southern California yep. and University of Pennsylvania. So, like I said, every school under the sun. <laughs> <laughs> so, did, did you finish your undergrad at Carleton or did you transfer to Claremont? No. Okay, so. Yeah. yeah. I actually got kicked out of Carleton after two years. <laughs> It was great. Actually, it wasn't. Um, Carleton was like my dream school. Okay. Like I worked so hard to get there. It was my first choice school. And I worked my tail off to get in. And I was an absolutely amazing candidate, which is why I got in. Mm -hmm. But then I got there and I was like, woo, freedom, <laughs> dudes. And I was like, and I literally, I don't remember writing a paper. And so like... <laughs> So like I got my little ass kicked out after two years. <laughs> I can look back on it now because it was like over twenty years ago, uh, but it took me about eighteen years to get over. <laughs> so when I was at Carleton, the language that I chose as a freshman was Chinese, and wow. the way. <laughs> I choose to do things is because like when people go that way, I go this way. Mm -hmm. Like when people zig, I just say, fuck you, I'm zagging. <laughs> and so, because <laughs> I hate to be like everybody else. I, I hate, I hate that. Um, so I chose Chinese because I knew everybody else was going to choose like French, Spanish, or German. Yeah. And I loved it so much, but I failed miserably. Um, and so when I got kicked out of school, I still want it kind of like an academic experience because I was just like in denial. I'm like, Janae can't get kicked out of school. She's like an excellent student. She's amazing. She doesn't get kicked out of school. What the hell is this? And so I'm like, I still have to do something fabulous. So I said, you know what? I'm just decided on a Wednesday that I would go to China, bought a ticket on Thursday, 
found a homestay program and enrolled at school on Friday and then like flew out on Saturday. And I stayed in Beijing for like four months. And it's like a Craig David song. I bought a <laughs> ticket on Wednesday. Found oh, it. I was yeah. On Thursday <laughs> and on Friday, I was in China. <laughs> That's so true. I didn't even think of that. But yeah. Um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of what I did, and it was wonderful. It was immersive, and I found out that I learned best through immersion. Mm-hmm. So six hours a day of language, going home to a family that spoke little English, um, and like within a month and a half, it was miraculous. Actually, I could actually listen to the news and like read parts of the newspaper. It was truly miraculous. Mm. Um, and I gained over the years after that, like a near native level of fluency. Don't ask me to speak shit now. I can speak a few <laughs> things, but like when you don't use it, you lose it. Right. Yeah. So what was that like, um, from a gastronomic experience to be like really enjoying the, the cuisine of China, not what we have here? I was just about to say that. So Beijing fair is nothing like what you go and get at your local Chinese shop on the corner. <laughs> like it's like I don't know what the hell people are thinking when they have like Chinese food here. I'm like, what the hell is this? But maybe it's like not Beijing fair, maybe it's something that you get down in Hong Kong. I don't really know, mm-hmm. but it is not Beijing food. Beijing food was just like it was literally like a thrill and for the senses. It was just just walking down the street, you can smell like grease. And that might sound gross, but it smells so good. No, no. It's, if you like fried food. Yes, it that, smells that. so good. Oh, my God. The thick grease just permeating, like, coming through your pores. And you were like, oh, give me more. It was awesome. And so there was that. And mm-hmm. there was, like, the, the the smell of, like, vegetables cooking at the same time. Vegetables in that same thick pour spewing out grease, right? Um, and so... It was just amazing. Like I was, I was always like, "Why? What are we eating in the states when this food is just so incredible?" So it was, it was wonderful and lovely. Yeah, like when did wine come in the picture here? So wine first came into the picture at Carlton. Okay. Like we'll say two thousand four. So okay. I was twenty one years old in two thousand four. I was home from college. I hadn't gotten kicked out yet. Yes, I had gotten kicked out. <laughs> yes, because I was at, Carl- at Carlton from 01 to 03. So I was done with Carlton, and I was home with one of my friends from Carlton. And on one of his breaks, went to his house for dinner. Um, parents brought out some wine. Uh, it was a Joseph Druin Pinot, a Burgundy. And I just remember, like, what is this? Just drink it. Just try it. Mm. And I drank it, and I was just like, mm-hmm. and I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, whoa, what is this? And I started like, actually, like, oh my god, it's so elegant, and it's so soft, and it's so, and it's so, and I started describing it in like ways, like personifying it, mm-hmm. and I was confused because I didn't know shit about wine, but I started describing it like. You know, somebody who would know something about wine. I was confused as to why I was describing it this way. And um, thank you. Thank you. Um, and so that kind of sent me down a rabbit hole to learn more. And that is what I did. 
So that's 2004. Oh, it's 2004. <clears throat> All right. And then you go out to um, <clears throat> California. Mm-hmm. And we have, there's a decent amount of wine in California. Were you uh, still kind of uh, exploring wine out in California when you were at? I was not. Okay. Not yet. Not until after I left Scripps and then thought, you know what? I want to learn more about this wine thing. And so I started buying more books, started taking more courses, um, and started buying more wine and trying to learn about it that way. And then um, started working at a wine shop. It was called Sam's Wines and Spirits, uh, which is now – it was now – it was absorbed by Benny's in Chicago. Um but it was a big big box retailer. Okay. And um, tried to learn about wine there. Was not a great place to work. Um, but, you know, a lot of people don't have great work environments. It's totally fine. Um, and also worked with a company that did wine consultancies. So that they were like a company that employed wine consultants who would go into retailers and talk to the retailers about how to merchandise their wine, to buy, so that, you know, sales would increase, et cetera, Mm -hmm. et cetera. And I did that for like, I don't know, a year. But those two kind of roles kind of really kind of got me into wine, like really, really into wine. And then a year later, which would have been 2010, is when I said, you know what, I love eating and drinking. I love telling people about my discoveries, mm. and I love telling people about it. So I guess the best form to do that would be to write about it, and that's how I started writing about food and wine. Wow! 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 Was that coherent? I've, I've yeah, had co- a lot of champagne here, so <laughs> I don't know if you guys can see us, but we are we are so drinking. Yes, we we are drinking on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was so she just she did it again. I'm sorry. Now, so, uh, Janae, when did you decide to combine your love for food and wine and writing? Oh, sorry, you just answered that, 2010. I'm so sorry. No, it's, it's all good. I'm just having fun. You're so much fun. This is going to be what this – is, this is one of those fun episodes. Oh, my God. So, um, over this – okay, so 2004 to 2010, mm-hmm. um, you know, we know that – you are passionate about champagne and burgundy. And actually, in the biosynthesis, and drink copious amounts of both daily. <laughs> well, I actually do drink champagne every day, just about every day, usually beginning at 8 a.m. without orange juice. Um, and uh, it's a great palate cleanser. It, I don't drink coffee. Coffee actually puts me to sleep, so it kind of wakes up my palate mm-hmm. um, and gets me ready for the day. Um if wine enthusiasts is listening, I don't know if they knew that about me, but they do now. <laughs> <laughs> so I love it. I love, love, love it. So, so when did this like? So over the over that time period, because we we got we got lots of stuff to talk about, but like we know that it was a bottle of Druin, it was a bottle of Burgundy, and mm-hmm. like you just went into like you were like you could wrote for Burghound. You're like it was elegant and aretha. I mean, you were mm-hmm. using all the adjectives. Yeah. Um, how did, when did the champagne thing kind of kick in? Ah, oh, I love this question. That was probably in 2009, 2010. Mm. And I remember it so vividly. I was at a dinner party. There were eight of us, 25 bottles of wine. 
this dinner party was just all wine people. So people who work for distributors, people who work for importers, um, people who work for retailers. And so obviously you're going to have all these amazing wines. So we had 25 wines mm -hmm. for eight people. And some of it's us drove right. after three, that. I know. That's why I was, that one always freaks me out. But yeah. that's like about three bottles a person. Yeah, it was about three bottles a person. And somebody brought Tarlant, mm. Champagne Tarlant, Brut Rosé. And I just remember, like, it was like, it's hard to describe. It was kind of like the the heavens opened up and 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 I was getting laid all in <laughs> all in one thing. It was just like it was just like it was amazing. I was like I, I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle sorry, does that need to be edited out? I'm so no, sorry. That is not. <laughs> that so is that is um let's I mean you look at uh if you look at wine journalism, uh, there is a very it's sexy. I mean, that's what we say about wine. They're sexy. Mm -hmm. It's voluptuous. It's got like so. It, no, I, it, it's you know, and wine helps. It's orgasmic. I mean, these are it is. yeah amongst the newer generation of writers for sure. So no, I love I love that you're just so vivacious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's kind of what it was like. I just remember, and most of Charlotte's range is zero dosage, and so. The way that zero dosage felt, meaning like no addition of sugar um, after disgorgement, after, um, yeah, after disgorgement. Correct. Um, mm -hmm. So no addition of sugar was added, but it actually, it's actually a sensation and a texture that ha on your mouth when there's zero dosage. It almost feels like it kind of sticky and prickly. Um, but in a way that is not aggressive, um, more of a massage and, and you can also taste the purity of fruit. You can, you can, you can, you can detect this kind of like pure acid that's just like nothing else that you've ever tried. And it was just mind boggling for me. And so... I was just like, "What is this? Maybe there's no sugar in this," and I and I had no idea. I didn't oh my know God. anything you're about like, champagne. You're like the natural. <laughs> there's no sugar. In yeah, it. I, I I had no, didn't know anything about champagne. I was, but I thought there's like there's probably no sugar in this. Found out later that it was zero dosage, which meant no mm -hmm. added sugar. And I was just like, from now on, this is all I'm gonna drink. And this wine has changed my life and changed my world. And that wine, that producer is to this day my absolute favorite champagne producer. And I always tell people that it has the longest finish ever because 10 years hence, I can still taste it. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I love that. I Absolutely. love that. Wow. Wow. And I got to meet them recently, which is great. Really? What was, what, how, how did that come about? I, actually, I'll let you move down with your questions because you're probably no. I don't. I, I, it's actually, we're, we're working on a new format. I don't okay. really use questions. It's just like I'm just just making sure I, I unpack everything. But no, no, I really I want to hear that. How'd you meet? I mean, um, how did that happen? So because we don't often get to meet our idols, you know. Yeah, for sure. So I was literally just got back into the states 36 hours ago after being in France for two weeks. Um, I got here on Monday night. Or Tuesday night, sorry. And I was one of four recipients of the inaugural Becky Wasserman I know, man. They were like, just send us an email. And I sent them an email, and then I didn't get it. And I was like, damn. And I had Paul on a podcast. <laughs> I was like, damn, bro, you should have told me. I could have did a whole video for you. I <laughs> 
<laughs> did a whole montage. Um, yeah. So no, see, this is perfect. Yeah. So you were over there because you you um, were one of the recipients, and that was put off a year because of COVID. Absolutely. And in the interim, um, the iconic importer Becky Washman passed away. Yes, she did. And and you wrote uh, actually an article about her for the wine enthusiast. Yeah, it was a tribute kind of piece. Mm-hmm. Um, she just kind of tangentially. Um, Back in 2012, I sent Becky an email saying, you know, I am a writer in Chicago. I have wanted to do one of your Bouillon Symposia for many years, for a couple of years. Um, I would love to do it. However, I don't have the money that it costs to do it because it was very, very expensive. I said, do you ever offer writers discounts to do one of your bouillon symposia within minutes she got back to me saying what's your phone number and i gave it to her a couple minutes after that she calls me from france Mm. i actually had a 45 minute long conversation with becky wasserman nine years ago and it was amazing um and she talked about how she always wants to see people of color um, instead of the same people on some of her Beyond Symposia, but never gets any. Um, and it's frustrating for her. And, you know, if I can get eight to ten people, black people, of, like people of color, to come on one of these trips, then she would either take care of or discount mm-hmm. my fee. And I'm like, hell yeah. <laughs> and so, like, Peter Wasserman um, – her eldest son mm-hmm. like hooked me up with somebody else who also wanted to do one of her symposia. And so we like worked on it for a year and nothing came of it. And that was the end of that. And then fast forward to 2020, I'm scrolling down LinkedIn on LinkedIn for like 20 minutes, which is more than I normally am on LinkedIn. Which is more than anybody's normally on LinkedIn. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not the, however, the visually stimulating. However, LinkedIn has. It's a gold mine. It's it's a since 2020 it's amazing mm-hmm. because it's like better than Facebook. You like want some popcorn and sit back and just watch <laughs> the comments. It's amazing. But um, but I was scrolling on LinkedIn and Peter Wasterman, who had been my connection for the last you know nine years, said, "Don't forget to apply to the Becky Wasserman Scholarship in a post," mm-hmm. and it had a link. And I'm like, "Oh my god, did I not hear about this? And like, did I miss it?" And so I clicked on the link. It took me to the Instagram page, Becky Washman's Instagram page. And I read it. And I was just like, oh, my God, my dream is coming true. This can actually happen. And so I – but the deadline was like two months away. So I hadn't missed it at all. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. But it took me literally two months before I actually applied. And I applied on the deadline um, two months later. Spent like three or four hours on answering the questions and made sure they were like meticulous and everything I wanted to say. I was like, yeah, likes wine. <laughs> oh, my God. I've never been to France. <laughs> Sounds cool. <laughs> She's freaking writing. Like, it took me all a the, really pa- long All the papers she didn't write in college, she's writing to get this exactly. scholarship to Burgundy. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so, yeah, that's – what I did and I applied and, you know, I got it, which was amazing. Yeah. And so um, when the tickets were purchased, I made sure that I built in some time to go to Champagne. Okay. And so my first week in France was in Champagne visiting 
again, some of my favorite producers of all time, including like Krug and and Charlon, and I, uh, you know, visited. Um, where else did I go? I, yeah, you, you, yeah, you, it was you, great. You don't post a lot on social media, but you were posting when you were in Champagne. Yes, I was. <laughs> yes, I was. Because I was just like, this is a dream come true. I yeah. can't believe it. It was just amazing. I went to Vilmar, um, another one of my favorite producers, and it was magical. And w- on the last day, um, the Comité, um, the CIVC, so the Champagne Bureau, Champagne Commission, if you will, hooked me up with Tarlon. And so I got to hang out with Melanie and Benoit for like three hours, and it was amazing. And then I'll see them also on Saturday for La Fête du Champagne here in NYC. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Um, I mean, that's this is why we have these conversations, because we would not have known about your 45-minute conversation with Becky Wasserman yeah. uh, years ago. Um so, what really was the attraction of Burgundy? I mean, you mentioned a little bit, but, but what's the attraction of Burgundy for you? For me, it was just that those sensations and those um, those flavors that I had never experienced before. And I was just intrigued. I'm like, what is this? How? Why am I describing wine this way? Um, and it was just kind of, it was incredible. It was incredible. And so, that's... That was the catalyst. Um, And then after learning more about Burgundy, you know, you just get so kind of wrapped up in it. Your head, like, explodes because there's so much to know. Um, And doing this Becky Wasserman trip, it was intensity on another level. Um, Like, master-level stuff every single day from 8 a.m. until midnight. And it was unbelievable but just really really intense like the amount of knowledge that the burgundians have uh the amount of passion i've never seen anything like it um and so i think it's that passion and that um yeah it's mostly like the passion obviously the flavor profiles that really really draw me to it with Whiteberg, I love, like, Chablis. I love searing acidity. I love, like, violent, disrespectful, <laughs> aggressive, like, knock-you-on-your-ass acidity. Like, torture porn acidity, right? And, <laughs> and you know, with a lot of White Burgundy, I can get that. Um, and that's the only time I like to be disrespected, guys, in my wine. That's it. <laughs> but I should probably make that clear. Um, but yeah, so 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 those are the things that kind of draw me to it. Um, also, that it's like generational. We're talking about Burgundy, so old. Like we're talking about like things that have been around since 900 AD. We're talking about like millennia, mm-hmm. and then generations. Like uh, Tarlant, for example. They are on the 12th generation, Melanie and Benoit. It's amazing. They've been around since 1687 or something like that. Mm. It's just unbelievable just how how something, how an agricultural product just kind of like shapes these families and kind of shapes this, this region um, to create the most outstanding product 
and to do it every year meticulously and then to pass that knowledge down to the next generation so that the next generation can have it and the next generation. That's, that's amazing to me um, with Burgundy and in Champagne. So what are some of your favorite um, domains in Burgundy? Oh, God, I got to go to some of them. Comte Lafon is one of them. Uh, Michel Lafarge. Um, who else do we go to? One of my new favorite domains is Sylvain Patai. Amazing. He has this stellar rosé called Fleur de Pinot that is just, I've never tasted a rosé like it in my life. It was unreal. Unreal. Um, who else did we see? Uh, Simone Bees. Uh, Joseph Druin obviously is one of my <laughs> favorite domains because that's what got me into wine. It's what got me into Burgundy. Um, Le Flave is another one of my favorites. So I have a lot. And yeah. like inside of that, Not I mean, me. <laughs> you mentioned the the, uh, the torturous acidity. And, and oh, yeah, torture porn acidity. Yeah, torture porn acidity. Yeah. Um, like what are you? What are some of your favorite village villages? Like, are you a Shoshone girl? Are you are you are you a uh, you know? Are you a Chambord Musenier? Are you a Chambertin? Good question. Uh, I kind of love Chambord. I also love Givry. Um, but after visiting La Mi, I'm kind of like all about Saint Alban. You know, um, he makes, white or red. He makes amazing whites, okay. um, and the whites we had with him were stellar. Um. Yeah, I think we just those are good. But Shasan's awesome too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, I think so many people will like. I only drink this, and and it's get very narrow minded even inside of Burgundy. People right. like I only drink this, you know. Um, and there's just it's. I mean, I don't fuck with Burgundy. To, <gasps> I mean, I'll drink it. But I don't fuck with it. Like, I'm not trying to learn it. It's just, it's so much. It's a lot. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's what I mean. Like, I love Burgundy, but I'm, I'm yeah. like, like, unless somebody wants to give me a trip for two weeks and have me immersed in drinking Burgundy from 8 to 12. I think you should do it with Doc J. <laughs> you know. <laughs> you and Doc J, that would be fun. Um, but, uh, it, it, you know, I love, I love white Burgundy, red Burgundy, but it is, and it's a lot. And like, I mean, because like, it changes like every hectare, right? Like, and, and people. It's so split up. Yeah. And, be, and families will have like zigzags, like yep. they, they'll have this part of the vineyard and that part of the vineyard. Talk about, I mean, like my producers, like her, her head's kind of rolling, but yeah, people, we have a we have various levels of people who listen to this podcast. Yeah. And then even my a lot of my winemaker friends in California, like if they make their own stuff, they might enjoy burgundy, but mm -hmm. like it, it's kind of explain this. Like you said, it's so old. Um, And what has happened generationally, like people, I believe, you know, someone dies and they got three kids and this kid gets that kid and this block and, and you know, like, so what's... There's there's a lot of, like, things splitting up. So there, yes, there are people that have, like, contiguous, contiguous um, parcels, mm -hmm. but a lot of it is kind of just split up. So you might have, like, a contiguous parcel here, but in the middle you have, like, things that have been chopped up, like, three different times. Um, and a lot of Burgundy is like that, a lot of the villages, and it's kind of like, it still hasn't, like, sunk in. Like I said, I got back. Mm -hmm. When did I get back? You said Tuesday, night. Tuesday night. So 36 hours ago. Yeah. Um, 
So having me try and have me remember like everything that I learned is just like, like no, I'm and just, I've been drinking we're, wine. We're just so it's talking. Kind of, like, insane, not but... trying. I'm not really trying to school you. We're just talking, girl. No, but <laughs> no, but I'm also I'm also just like I'm trying to remember. I can't be more specific. Gotcha. But you are right that so much of it is kind of like just split up. Right. Um, Domaine Dujac was talking about that as well. We went to visit Domaine Dujac. <laughs> she was um, gonna leave that out. She went yeah. to Dujac. <laughs> Oh my god. It was amazing. It was fun. It was fun. Um but yeah, it was it's it's interesting how it all works out. I I would say to the listeners if you really want to learn more about Burgundy, you're not going to listen to me talk about it. You are going to buy Jasper Morris's Inside Burgundy. You are going to um you are going to go on the Wine Scholar Guild site and you are going to, you know, do their new master of Burgundy um, and learn from the people who know it best. Like, you know, you're going to talk to Alan Meadows. Alan Meadows is amazing. And, you know, we were supposed to meet up, but we never did because he had some appointments he couldn't miss. Um, But, yeah, it's just, it's a wondrous place. And then, sure, it's mostly Pinot and Chard, but then you have – places that are doing, you know, Sauvignon Blanc um, and Saint-Brie. And then you have... Um, really? I mean, I know about yeah. Alagote and I know... And Alagote. Domaine Loire just did their first game. I knew about that, but mm-hmm. some people are making Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah, and Saint-Brie. Wow. It's the, yeah, the only place that uh, Sauvignon Blanc is allowed to grow in Burgundy. Um, and Alagote, I found out about something called Aligote Doré, which is something that I had never heard of before, um, which is like meaning golden Aligote. And it is like in the glass, the color is like this deep, deep, almost glowing yellow. Um, And the grape itself is like super, super yellow. It looks like almost like neon. Um, And that's something I hadn't heard Mm -hmm. of before. Um, So... And then there's a lot of, like, biodynamic farming. So Burgundy's doing some really, really cool stuff. And, yes, the the region itself is, like, very old. But um, these winemakers are really kind of, like, pushing pushing the boundaries and, like, pushing things forward and doing some really innovative things, which I think is really admirable and cool. Nice. Yeah. So you did. So you did tell a lot about Burgundy there. I mean, I didn't. And, I, that was just touching the surface. No, I know, but know? I also love. Thank you for giving people the resources, you know, because we'll get those in the show notes for sure. You yeah. Know? Um, but oh my god, that's so cool. So we're gonna go back to champagne for a second, as you have a sip. Um, you're pursuing your master of champagne. Uh, what does that entail? A whole lot of studying. <laughs> <laughs> So it's a, a year-long course. Well, I, I guess I wouldn't say it's a year-long course. You have a year to take the exam after you sign up. Okay. I'll say that. Um, and it's 15 different modules um, with a bunch of different, quote, experts in Champagne. So I'll say notable people of Champagne who, who's – whose responsibility and whose focus is champagne. So like Peter Liam, um, Charles Curtis, people like that. Um, And they teach you about the villages, uh, about flavor profiles. Like it's like a real deep dive, immersive master level of um, champagne. It's a really, really good resource if any of you out there are listening and are pursuing the MW. 
or have just gotten, you know, an invitation to start BMW, taking the master's champagne class is going to, you know, really be a boon for you when you start talking about sparkling wine and champagne. Um, so it's just, it's, it's amazing. Mm. And of course they have bottle recommendations so you can enjoy your champagne while you're studying it. Um, just don't get too drunk because then you won't remember shit. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So you also collect champagne. I do. How, how big is your collection right now? Mm, not very. Um, it's pretty small. Probably about a hundred bottles of champagne. I mean, I, I mean, in, in terms of, yeah. In terms of even most people don't collect wine in the United States, but damn, hundred bottles. So, like, uh, what are some of your favorite bottles? Oh my god, anything Tarlant. So Tarlant. Mm -hmm. um, like, I like things that are interesting too. Okay. Um, so Tarlant has one called Bam, which could stand for Benoit and Melanie, the two, the brother and sister duo who run Tarlant, but it is a uh, it's Pinot Blanc. It is Arban and is Petit Melier, which are three of the other approved grapes that can grow in Champagne, along with Pinot Gris. Pinot Gris is like the seventh grape that's allowed to be grown in Champagne. Mm. So they use, and they call Arban, Melier, and Pinot Blanc ancient varieties because they only account for like 0.3% of plantings um, around the region. So very, very rare. I actually got to taste some Petit Melier and Arbonne grapes, and it was just insane. Like, sure, you know, you can find wine where these grapes are used, but to actually taste the actual grapes themselves was, like, crazy. And I did that at Tarlant. Mm. Um, we went to the vineyard, and they cut off some grapes and we got to taste and it was wonderful. The Petit Melier was just like insanely acidic. Like, and so oftentimes that's why people think that, you know, they fell out of favor. Those grapes fell out of favor because they are too acidic mm -hmm. to be used on their own. But there are a lot of producers who are doing single variety Petit Melier, like Duval Lois is doing one. Wow. Um, and then they are, there are lots of, um, Producers that are also using all seven varieties or six of the varieties to make a champagne. So, um, so yeah, that's pretty cool. So I have a lot of Tarlant. I have um, Jemonet. I have a lot of special club bottles. Um, and there are, are a lot of producers that do special clubs. Usually around 26 to 29. It changes every year. Um, so I bought like some Remy Massin like 100% Pinot Blanc when I was in Champagne, wow. um, a special club bottle, which is really cool. Um, what else do I have? I have like some Salos. I have some Salon. Um, I have a lot of people. Yeah. Very nice. It's fun. Very nice. It's fun. Um, you know what? We're going to pause on Salon. Great. More liquor. And we'll, we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back, everybody. Just a second. Hey everybody, what's up? It's your boy MJ. I know you like podcasts because you're listening to one right now. If you want another one to check out, you will love Where the Wine Takes You. It's Apostle Robles Wine Podcast hosted by Adam Montiel. And this podcast is all about the wines, winemakers, and stories of Apostle Robles. It's available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen to it on their website, 
PasoWine.com. P-A-S-O Wine.com. Hey, hey, what's up? It's your boy MJ again. Fun fact for you. Did you know that the ideal temperature to store wine is 56 degrees? Well, Joe Bembry and the crew at 56 Wine not only know that, they also had the audacity to name their store 56 Degree Wine. They even kept the thermostat set at 56 degrees until a few customers complained that it was a bit chilly. Listen, if you're looking for a great selection of carefully curated wines of perfect provenance, you need to go check them out. That's 56degreewine.com. You can use the code MJ at checkout and receive 15% off your first order. Well, clearly we're back. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That's all good. (laughs) We're back. And um, so, you know, you actually recently wrote a piece or I don't know how recent, but on cult wines. Oh, yes. And uh, it's actually called cult, uh, The History of Cult Wines U.S. Um, so, again, I have newbies and I have people who make cult wines who listen to this podcast. But for people who may not know, uh, how did you define a cult wine in, that, uh, in your article? The way most people describe describe a cult wine. Something that is scarce, uh, little, little um, out, very tiny allocation. Um, no marketing, very expensive, pretty much the definition of a cult wine. Um, and yeah, we talk about the origins of the term and, you know, how it's just very polarizing. Um, some people love it and embrace it and other people hate it and think that it's too exclusive, even though they make these very exclusive wines. Um, we talk about like how... (laughs) We talk about, like, how these cult wines came to be. Like, um, for example, I think um, Michael Cruz uh, talked about, like, you know, we only wanted to make enough wine before because we only wanted to know if we could sell it. Right. And so... I thought that was interesting. I read that. Yeah. And and, and for those who don't, um, Michael Cruz makes... I haven't had it. Fucking, I want to have it. I was hoping you are going to bring that, but this isn't... Just because I've never had it. I've never had this before. Ultra fucking oh, marine. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So you should see what she's doing. Like ultra marine is supposed to be the truth. It, it was it was the truth. <laughs> yeah. Like I did a tasting with him and I had some kind of like unfinished ultramarine and like man, I was like, I'll finish it for you. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, are you kidding? This is amazing already. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah, the article is great because it talks about um, the things you mentioned. Um, you kind of Napa was the epicenter of that. Um, yep. And um, and let's. I love the part. Talk about Screaming Eagle for for people. Because I, you know, I would just say this when I got in the wine business in '97. Think Screaming Eagle, whatever their first. I had like I've had Screaming Eagle my first like five years in the wine business. I had Screaming Eagle like fucking at least a dozen times. Oh my God. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, um, and um, and I'll let you talk. But what I really thought was cool was like, now that was one they didn't set out to be a cult wine, and like they price it at seventy five dollars a bottle, and people are like, are you nuts? Yeah, like set, and 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 then like it now now fuck Screaming yeah. Eagle. Yeah, yeah, I've actually never had Screaming Eagle. Oh wow. Um, yeah. 
MJ. <laughs> Mr. I've had it a dozen times. Sorry. <laughs> Probably going to have it next Saturday, too. Oh, I'm going to have it next Saturday. Oh, I feel a, so bad uh, for you. Out of a big bottle. I'm sure I have a oh, large format. Oh, he keeps rubbing it in, you guys. He keeps rubbing it in. <laughs> Pretty sure there's going to be some screaming eagle at this party I'm going to next Saturday. Oh, maybe I should just fly back here and invite myself. <laughs> but anyway, I, I digress. <laughs> Pretty awesome. Um, yeah, so Heidi, um, this kind of like put her on the map as well, Heidi Barrett. Um, she, it was kind of like a directive given her by the owners of Dalla Valley. Um, just go help the Phillips, you know, Jean Phillips um, do this wine. And she's like, okay. And it was amazing and people loved it. And, um, you know, they uh, they priced it really, really low because they didn't expect it to be this kind of, like, big thing. It wasn't even, like, set out to be, like, a cult wine. They just wanted to make a really good wine. Mm-hmm. Um, and they priced it at $75, which was kind of, like, unheard of at the time. And this was, like, 1992, 1993. Um, <laughs> which I find hilarious because now it's, like, $12.50 a bottle upon release. Yeah. That's off the mailing list. <laughs> Yeah, it's off the mailing list, yeah. right? It's not even secondary market. That's not even secondary market. So, um, yeah, but the fact that a lot of these cult wines kind of started as just, they, not as flukes, but they were just people who wanted to make a really good wine, and then they just got so scarce because there is more more demand than there was supply. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is kind of what happened with, you know, Screaming Eagle as well. You know, people heard about it. They started whispering about it. Um Parker gave it his, you know, his Parker score and that kind of thrust it into the spotlight um, because Parker obviously has and had much influence. Um, and, yeah, that was that. You also talked about in that article about uh, one of my favorites, also Synchronon. Mm, Manfred Crinkle. He's a cool dude. Yes. Manfred and Elaine. They're yeah, very cool Elaine's people. Cool, yeah. Yes. Um, but same thing. I mean, let's talk about, let's talk about, parkerization of the wine business yeah for a second um because you work for a wine magazine and so now you know he ended up being a polarizing figure um ultimately what do you think did he did he help the industry or hurt the industry what was kind of like your take that's a great question one and the question i don't know if i can answer um i think that he definitely has a certain palette um and the fact that a lot of people want to tailor to that palette is not necessarily good for the industry because it makes everything kind of taste the same. And it feels, going back to what I said at the beginning of the hour, it feels a little insincere. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that when you love and have passion for something, you should do it because you want to do it in the way that you want to do it, not because you want to cater to someone else so that they can, you know, give you laud or, you know, make you, you know, give you that kind of acclaim. You should do it because you love it and the acclaim will come organically. Um, So, yes, he is polarizing, but um, he also kind of made wine in a way mainstream because now people are thinking, okay, I know what 99 points means. Mm-hmm. I know what 88 points means. I know what 100 points mean. I mean. This is good. This is why it's expensive, blah, 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 blah. And even though there's a lot of different factors that go into 
a score or a price, et cetera, et cetera, um, he kind of started the conversation mm -hmm. with his palate mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. a critic. Yeah. yeah. And I think in, in people... In the United States, as we do, we keep score. We keep score. Everything's I mean, about I mean, numbers. For I, us. Mean, I mean, so I think to your point, I agree. It kind of, it kind of helped because people had no way, uh, you know, of knowing. And also, what you said, I agree with as well. The thing to understand is, and I tell people to this day, like, a critics, critics are like mileposts or guideposts. You have to understand your palate. You have to understand their palate. Yep. You have to be able to decipher what a score like, like, you know, Parker or Jeb Dunnick will give something ninety-seven. Wine Spectator will give it ninety-one. Yep. You know, and you're like, how the fuck? But that's, you know, that's their palate. So you have to be yeah. able to read between that. And um, and then also it is good because, like, when I see, like, you do see some of these new cabs that want to, or these new wines that want to be cult wines. So mm -hmm. just out the gate, first vintage, they consult with, like, Philippe Milka or, you know, Michelle, Michelle Ron, blah, yeah. blah, blah. And it's 400 bucks a bottle. And it's, it's like, it's 91 points. I'm not, who the fuck buys a, a 91 point $400 bottle of wine? <laughs> There's like four thousand ninety-one point wines yeah. that that you get for like fifteen dollars or less. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so, absolutely. You know, so I think there it, it, it's it's knowing how to use them. It's like it's a tool, right? It, it, it's it's a guide, and yeah. I think that people, if people see it as a guide and not kind of like the, the gospel, Bible, yeah, exactly, then it, it's more helpful. Mm -hmm. um, but starting out, if you are somebody who doesn't know anything about wine, you want to kind of like you, you need some concrete steps instead of like trying to go down this rabbit hole yourself then yes you are going to um take scores as more of the gospel as you said mm -hmm. but then you'll eventually say okay these are just a guide and this is you know i have to judge for myself uh, whether I think that it is worth 190 points or $90, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you now live in St. Helena. I do. Which is where for people who may not know? <laughs> Napa Valley. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's like one of these, like you got Oakville, kind of like going to that a little bit because I don't necessarily really fully understand that. But St. Helena is very it's iconic mm -hmm. it's called um it's considered to be the heart of napa valley okay. and i actually think that saint helena the town has more wineries i think than any other place any other town in napa okay and napa is kind of like if you think of napa proper napa city which is like eighty thousand people and then yauntville which is like four thousand St. Helena is about 6,000, and Calistoga is about 5,000. Right. Yeah. So how did you end up in the heart of the Napa Valley? Um, I moved my little ass out of Calistoga. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if we if we just want to be, like, completely well, I frank. Asked, I asked the question. <laughs> you asked the question. And I, got I gave an you answer. a simple answer. A asked and answered. <laughs> so, 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 okay, when did you end up? In yes. Napa Valley. How'd you end up in Calistoga? Yeah, that, that's a better question. Let of me, course. Let yes. me rephrase, Your Honor. <laughs> of course. So I moved to Napa, um, Napa Valley in 2016 because, you know, I had been writing about food and wine from Chicago for about six years at that time. Okay. And I thought, you know, I could actually just – it makes sense to kind of move to the epicenter of wine in America um, and be surrounded by all beauty and vineyards, et cetera. And I think it would be cool to – 
do what I do from there. And so I moved to Napa Valley in 2016. And so that's how that happened. Um, and then the last three years I was in Calistoga mm-hmm. um, and um, recently moved to St. Helena. Um, I live on two vineyards, which is great. One, one's in the front of me and one's behind me. And it is a definite upgrade from the home that I lived in, Calistoga. And um, Can you say what vineyards they are? Uh, no. I think they're Gallo-owned, both okay. of them. Gotcha. Yeah. So just prime property. but Yeah, prime yeah. property um, on a really famous street in St. Helena. And it is... It's magical kind of living there, and it's it's wonderful to be surrounded by beauty and symmetry, also the quiet, mm-hmm. but also on the street where, you know, all these amazing wineries are, um, where, you know, you can just pop in and taste or talk to the winemaker or vineyard manager or, you know, about, you know, what's going on in the vineyard at any time. It's pretty great. What's it like working in a tasting room? Napa Valley, because I mean, you know, you had some experiences. I did, and they were all bad. Okay. Um, and this is a topic really that has bad. come up, you yeah. know, recently in the industry, right? So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. what? And I think um, talk about. I think the thing that struck me was like um, they were being dis- the, the owners of the property were being dismissive of. You know, uh, or so I wrote a piece for Vine Pier last year, mm-hmm. and. Um, I talked about one of my experiences at one of the wineries that I mm-hmm. worked for. And I didn't I, – I was not referencing the owners. I okay. was referencing the – or alluding to um, the management. Okay. Um, and Got so it. we'll we'll say that the owners are kind of separate from management because they are – they, they want to hear all the good things that are happening and then the people under them are the ones that, you know – run everything. So the president, uh, the the HR manager, and the director of hospitality. And those three people happen to be like really, really buddy-buddy with each other. Um, but the director of hospitality and her minion, who was also um, one of my managers, they were just awful humans. Um, and being a black person in a tasting room, and the only black person in a tasting room, you you were constantly reminded that you are black and that you have zero credibility, um, that you are not valued, um, and that you are completely expendable every single day. And the things that I experienced and heard and had to endure every single day, multiple times a day, for a year and a half, just from customers – was enough to last a lifetime. But then also having no support Mm -hmm. from the management was even worse. Um, And even though I stopped working from that place, I left in 2018, it is still very, I won't say top of mind because it's kind of like, ha, 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 right. dumbasses. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm gone and you don't have me anymore. Right. And but, it's, right. But, right. It, but it's still very, very much a part of who I am and it colors my experience 
as a person of color in the wine industry. Obviously, I've been in the industry for over a decade. Um, and there have been other experiences that have colored my experience. But this one is the most recent one. And it is... Uh, In the production box. Sorry. Um, it's the most recent one. And um, I think that it's the one that hurts the most. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Um, what was your biggest takeaway from, from that whole experience? Hmm. I don't know if I can. I'm not going to say on air, actually. Um, okay. But... No, nothing I, that I didn't know already. Got it. Um, so the things that I took away were, you know, I am a black person in America. I, no matter how honest I am, I am always seen as a threat and non-credible. Um, and that because of my melanin, I don't matter in the workplace. So those are the things that I took away. Um, and those are the things that really, really, they're kind of like the driving force um, yeah, they're the driving force. They, they are they they are those things are the reason I do the reasons I do what I do. The reasons why when other people zig, I zag. the the reasons why I am. I consider myself a maverick. The reasons why I um, love to kind of be a role model and um, the reasons why I have always enjoyed being the only person of color in at a tasting um, because I can be the model saying this is for you too, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. This is not just some rich white person's thing. This is for you, it's for everybody. It is the most global of industries, right? Um, vines grow in every place around the world, including Antarctica. They're cultivating vines on Antarctica, They're right? cultivating vines in uh, Bhutan as well. What? That's right. Say what? That's right. That's some shit right there. Uh, somebody doesn't listen to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh crap! He, yeah. he got me. He got me. He got me with that one. He's uh, like, I kid, I kid. Um, no, yeah. I I hear you, right? And but I think all those experiences shape us. You know, they do as a person and as a people. Um, and like, look at so. Let's talk a bit about you're the first ever black editor. Mm, yeah, at the wine enthusiast. Yeah. That was probably hard fought. It was, actually. I um it was my dream job. I had another dream job. Um a job at Gallo, actually, mm. that was offered to me. And, you know, I had I signed the offer letter and all that and had a start date and everything, and then like three days after I was supposedly going to start. They revoked my offer and told me um, 
and I couldn't figure out why. And they eventually I got in touch with somebody, and it was because I didn't fin finish one semester of a degree in Chinese language and literature from 15 years ago. Shut the fuck up. Nope. <laughs> and still that's that old bullshit yes exactly that is that exactly. old bullshit exactly <laughs> wow but you know what the fuck does Chinese history have to do with wine it was a writing role too it was a writing role what I mean yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you're not are you, were you writing in Chinese <laughs> I was not I was okay. writing about wine <laughs> but yes you were thinking exactly what I'm thinking but it was a blessing in disguise because I then had the opportunity to apply for another open role with Wine Enthusiasts, which was not my second choice because it was either, you know, I, I do both copywriting and editorial, like journalistic writing. And so the role for Gallo was a, um, a copywriting role. And the one I'm doing for Wine Enthusiasts, obviously, is an editorial role. So either role was, you know, my dream job, and I had applied for both. And so... I received one, then it was revoked, I applied for another, and I got it. Um, and it was a blessing in disguise that I didn't do the gala one because I am over the moon with what I do and the team I work with. I am almost 39 years old, and I've been working since I was 16. And this is the first time, and I just passed, like, just last week, my one-year anniversary with Wine Enthusiasts. And... This is the first time in my life where I've worked for some place that I'm actually proud of, mm. um, where I am inspired every day by the team I work with. Like, I want to do better. I want to I wanna be better. Um, like, I want to work harder. Like, I want to get up earlier to start work earlier because, like, I'm just inspired by what we do and the people I'm surrounded by. For the first time ever in my working life. Um, so it was a true blessing in disguise. And um, when I got the job, an editor emailed me and said, you know, your presence here means so much because, you know, you're the first black editor and um, the first person of color in this role. And like, it means so much to me. And I just thought that's incredible and, you know, after I got the job, my mom was, like, so happy because she knows how hard I worked. And my mother, I, t I take care of my mom. And so, um, you know, when I got this new role, it was almost like, you know, a, a, a young child getting her first job, even mm -hmm. though, you know, I'm well into adulthood who's had many, many jobs. Um, but she knows how hard I worked over many years to get this role. And so one of the people she called was um, one of my aunts. And my aunt said, you know, that is so wonderful that she got that job, but it's so sad, too, that she's also the first. But it's so wonderful that she's also the first. And that summed it up perfectly. Um, but now we have three black editors on the team, which is wonderful. Um, and, you know, our voices are heard. And not just heard, but, like, like – what we say matters. It's not just dismissed and glossed over. And I think that makes a world of difference for, you know, being in the workplace. You know, when you're not just dismissed, you are included and you are valued. Supersonic. Um, <clears throat> why do you think or uh, what do you think? 
has led to like you're the first and now you have a few more like what do you think do you think is it what do you think that is um hmm. that's a great question and i'm hesitant to answer because um of how it could be construed i get that because let me let me put it see if i can because your, your aunt made a good point right said that you're first but like but then now it seems like things have changed. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how to ask that question. Like, well, here I'll I'll I'll, I'll help I'll, you. Yeah. I think for one thing, COVID as awful as it was definitely helped because I would not have gotten my role um, had COVID not hit because it was strictly a New York based role. But um, I asked the EIC the editor-in-chief, if she would, you know, consider somebody who lived in Napa Valley. And she said, you know, you know, we're thinking about it. Um, and, you know, because of COVID and it would the be nice. The H-E-I-C, to- you know where my mind <laughs> The H-E-I-C. <laughs> That's a tight one for those who know. If you know, you know. If you know, you know. <laughs> so funny. Um but yeah, so she said, yeah, it would be nice to have somebody in, in wine country. And so that, go ahead that and apply. Seems, that would make it, sense to me. It makes sense. And, you know, it's COVID. So everybody's like, you know, kind of like spread out anyway. It was like, we're never going to go back to work again. Oh, my God, we're all going to die. I know, right? <laughs> so it worked out well. I applied and wished and hoped and prayed that, you know, they might consider somebody who lived in wine country. 3,000 miles away, and they did. And it's, you know, it's been pretty seamless on my end. Like, Mm -hmm. I I feel like I see these people every day on Zoom and Mm -hmm. Slack, and it feels like I am in an office with them, but we're all distributed right now. We're all at our homes. Gotcha. Um, And so, yeah, I I think COVID definitely helped because without that, I I don't know how many people – would have applied or would have gotten it. But it's really difficult for people of color in general um, I mean, in, just in the, the job publishing is, and I'm, media but, industry. I mean, because it's like, these are, these are like, okay, I've gone, I've graduated from law school. Every fucking job I got is because I knew somebody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for these type of jobs, media and publishing, yeah. unless you're going to work at Johnson Publishing, and even then, you got to know the right black folks. You do. Right, so Linda Johnson writes and Desiree Rogers, right? Right. You know? yeah. So, so you know, like people don't know things like the SNL staff all comes from fucking Ivy League schools yeah. because of the Harvard Lampoon. Yeah, you know. Um, so when you see uh, you know black writers breaking through, you know it's because they're really, really, really fucking good. They're really good. Yeah, yeah sure, absolutely. But also. Um, Media and publishing are notoriously difficult to break into, and it is because the jobs, the roles are so coveted, Yep. and they're so scarce. No one leaves, Yep. but the fact that we now have three black yeah, women on the – it's huge. It's amazing, and I really do think partially is because COVID definitely helped. Without a doubt. But, you know, so I'm, I'm – so I'm, as awful as it was, I am so blessed that that opportunity – came i wouldn't have a podcast without COVID. you wouldn't have, see p- people become entrepreneurs yep. they they, they have, have been talking about ideas. it for years yeah. and then finally i was like you know what there's never time to start it i mean literally absolutely um no that's really cool and it is co- and the same thing I, I i try to tell people who want to become a master somali if you're a mm-hmm. person called like first of all not a lot of jo- you're looking at that movie 
There's not how many Michelin starred restaurants are. There's not a lot of restaurants, believe it or not, that actually have Somalis in them. Right. When you, when you look at all the restaurants in the world. Yeah. Yep. Um. So you just know it's it's going to be, and I think you did. You got to grind it out. You got to you got to be willing. You got to be committed, and you got to work. I hate to say, it, but your parents, you got to work twice as hard. Twice as hard, be considered even half, half as good, good right? Yeah. 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 So. Um, but no, that's awesome. Kudos for you, and you. and uh, really looking forward to see what uh, happens there. But I mean, that's not where it stops for you. I mean, like, uh, what's it like? How did you come to be working on Karen McNeil's The Wine Bible? Oh, so that came about like in so there was a job offer that um, not a job offer, a role that she was hiring for that I applied for and didn't get. It was between me and someone else. Um, and that was like 2019. And so when I didn't get it, I said, okay, I didn't get it. But I would really like to be involved in the third edition of the Wine Bible in whatever way I can. So if you ever need help, let me know. And um, she called me and said, hey, we went with somebody else, but we would also love to have you on as one of our research team. Um, and all of us were, according to her, picked because of our palates, but also um, because we had a background in wine. And so that came to be like late 2019. Um, and I worked on that for about a year. Um, January of 2021, I stopped because I was just too busy. Um, and yeah, it was, it, was, it was fun while it lasted, okay. you know. And uh, when that third edition comes out, I'll be one of the first to line up for it because we, we did a lot of work and we did a lot of really great work on it. So <clears throat> run us through a, a typical day of uh, the first black editor of the wine enthusiast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, a typical day. Uh, no day is really typical, but um, a day, let's say, I might start out updating the homepage. So I'll add, you know, whatever sponsored ad goes on the homepage so people can see it. Then I will put some of the print publication, because we have the print edition of the Wine Enthusiast magazine that you guys subscribe to. Um, and we have the digital version, um, winemag.com. So I will put some of the print stories onto the website um, so that more people will have the chance to read them. I will go over some editing because I might have, let's say, four to six pieces out to freelance writers. And so they have turned in their final versions to me, and now it's time for me to do my first pass, my editing pass with them. And so I will do that for a couple hours and then send it back to them to get feedback to say, you know, if you have any questions with any of these edits, let me know. Um, after I do that, I might work on some of my own stories, either writing or editing them. Um, and it takes me a really, really long time to write, uh, probably because I have ADHD and I always have all these thoughts in my head. Um, and I also over-report, like I talk to a bazillion people for a piece, but um, I might actually just be writing a piece of my own, or I will be talking to um, a source for a story that I'm doing, and might 
drink a glass of wine for like five minutes, you know, 8 a.m., <laughs> right? <laughs> some champagne, um, have some meetings. We always have tons and tons of meetings. So let's say if it's on a Tuesday, we'll have three hours of meetings. That's mm. three hours out of my day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like the day ends. And then there's a lot of like Slack chats if, I don't know, if you guys out there know Slack, it's like a, a, a yeah, they, enterprise. They, they like to advertise on TV. Now. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those companies that people know because of COVID. Yeah, it's an enterprise messaging platform. So um, it's a way to kind of stay in touch with your colleagues. And it's like a – what was that thing called? Was it called AIM? Uh, AOL? Yeah, a- uh, AOL Instant Messenger. Instant Messenger, yeah. yes. So it's kind of yeah. like that. Yeah. But for work, you know, you can either bitch on Slack if you want or you can talk about like, so the website isn't working. What do we do about it, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's a lot of that going back and forth, a lot of brainstorming for headlines, for the s- tomorrow's story, et cetera, et cetera. So that's pretty like pretty much eight hours of my day. So – as an editor, do you get like invited to like events around Napa or like so you end your day and then like, oh, I'm going to the French laundry for this? Like, oh, I get invited to things all the time. It's great. <laughs> I love it. It's great. But you know, you have to make it very clear that sure, you can invite me to this, but you know, there's should be no expectation of coverage. If gotcha. the story comes of it, right. great. If one doesn't, just know that you invited me and my presence was enough for you. (laughs) 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 Apologies for saying that, but yeah. No, I kind of get it. No, I definitely get it. I mean, I mean, people send me wine. I'm like, you could send me wine. Yeah, exactly. Doesn't mean it's going to get reviewed or posted on my Instagram. Absolutely. Um, And I just say that because, you know, I get sent, thank you for all the people who send me wine, but sometimes I get wines that just, they're not wines I would ever buy and I taste them and I'm, so I'm, to you, I'm not going to be inauthentic. Right, exactly. So, you know, um, I, 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 and I can only imagine, and I'm independent media, but like you're established, now you're an established wine media that people are, are looking for favors. People are all, it's amazing. People come out of the woodwork and it's not just, and I'm not talking about PR people. We need PR people. PR people are wonderful. They help us, you know, generate story ideas. They they familiarize us with different regions. PR people are fantastic. But other people come out of the woodwork. People that you don't even like all of a sudden want to be your best friend. Like, hey, I have a story idea for you, Janae. Great to see you. I'm like, girl, six years ago, you didn't even answer my email. What are you talking about? Like, we are not friends. So there's a lot of that going on, and I and I hate I hate the how just disingenuous it is. Um, but you know, you always have to be professional and mm-hmm. and be a consummate professional all the time, and try to balance that. You know, the fact that people are always going to want something from you, with knowing how to put your foot down, and say no, or to you know embrace them and say. Okay, let's work on this together. Right on, right on. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> you just came back from Burgundy. Yeah. Was that your first trip? Uh... It was. It was. It was out of control. Out of control. Yeah. Like yeah. out of control. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and, and then did you uh, go to 
fly back to like SFO or did, I did. You, okay and then you got on a plane so let's talk about you mentioned it before but let's talk about what you're doing in New York besides being on the Black Wine Guy Experience podcast. <laughs> so yes, I got in on Tuesday evening to my house and then I was supposed to fly to New York yesterday at noon but I was just like I was just like too tired so instead I took a red eye last night okay to, to get in just to give myself like at least two hours at home instead of going home and going right back to the airport um but I flew to New York um because I am going to La Fête du Champagne which is one of Daniel Jonas's three big events uh the others being the main one being La Palais um the other being um La Table which is his La Palais Rhone version, mm-hmm. and then um, Le Fête du Champagne, which is he and Peter Liam and and their kind of like La Palais of bubbles. So I came here for that, and I roped in three of my Napa pals to come with me, and so we all bought plane tickets. We all bought tickets to uh, Le Fête du Champagne, and we are very excited to finally be dressing up again and because we miss events. Um, We're also crazy COVID people, meaning we are, you know, we don't hang out with a lot of people, always wear masks, et cetera, et cetera, fully vaccinated, boosters coming up. But at the same time, we are ready to kind of like do events again. So we all flew out here for the grand tasting um, and some great gastronomic experiences in the three days that I'm here in NYC. Is this your first uh, time to uh, La Fête de Chambon? It is my first time at La Fête. I've been, tr- I've tried to go like every year since its inception and it just has not happened, but um, stars align this year and it worked out. And what about La, La Pole? Have you ever been to La Pole? I've never been to La Pole, but that's another thing that I've wanted to go to for years. And hopefully in 22, I will also be able to go. So um, <clears throat> that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, and I hear you. Like I uh, went to uh, New York Champagne Week um, also this week. Mm-hmm. It is this week. And I think it wrapped it wrapped up yesterday or today or but um, I don't know. It's just drinking, guys. Yeah, it's drinking. Um, but no, they had. I went to the, the 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 opening event Monday night, and it was so nice. Yeah. It, it, like for me, that's like this beverage is really great for bringing people together to have conversations, and it was just really nice. But also, I'm, I was like, oh, shit, there's a lot of people in here. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, but which is something you never thought about in the past. Yeah. You know, um, but at the end of the day, it was so much fun. It's great. And, it was so you know, much fun. you're a little reassured because, you know, there's a vaccine mandate. You have to show that yeah. you've been vaccinated, and that kind of helps. Um, and I'm all about that. But I also am a person who will get a pour, pull up my mask. Until I go to the next pour, and so I'm. You're very, very kind of, conscientious. That's I really am, good. I am. I am. I'm like. I'm, I'm like the 1920s. Like Lizzie said, once I <laughs> once I show my ID, the mask is off. <laughs> I'm just a paranoid person. No, my my mother lives with me. I take care of her, and so it. like I have to be really conscientious and very cognizant of of what I do and I and totally how understand. I do it. Yeah. 
um, because I don't want her to get sick. She's, you know, 75 and, like, she also just had colon cancer surgery. Mm. And so, like, I definitely want don't want her to get sick. She's the light of my life and incredible and wonderful. And um, obviously I want her to be as healthy as possible. So um, when did she when did she move out to California with you? She I moved her out here in 2017. So after I'd been out here a year. Okay. Yeah. What what did she think of uh, the move to California? My mother is just so agreeable to everything. She's a saint. She's always happy. She's always nice. She doesn't raise her voice. She doesn't swear. She's just like this like little perfect saintly person. And so like she just <laughs> she's like Oh, it's so pretty out here. And, oh, I'm just fine, Janae. It's okay that all my friends are in Chicago. That's what the phone is for. <laughs> like, where, well, where's the lie? That is what the phone is for, <laughs> to talk to people who aren't here with you. She's excellent. <laughs> like, I'm so obsessed with her. Um, so, yeah. So she, she loves it. She loves it. It's very pretty out here. She likes um, the fact that it's quiet and peaceful. Um, and she now has her own group of people that she knits with and they sing, they knit for the homeless and they used to pre COVID sing for, um, sing for the elderly. And, you know, she's, she calls herself elderly. She's 75. Um, I don't think she's elderly, but, um, you know, she sings for people who are older mm-hmm. than her, mm-hmm. um, at the, the senior home and, with her group of friends. And um, so she's found a community, which is great. It's really all I wanted because I didn't want her to be super too lonely. And um, she loves it. She loves it. She loves our new place. And um, she's just happy, like, fixing up the new place and knitting and talking to her pals. And that's all I could ask for. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah. So what's on the horizon for you? Uh, What's what 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 you know? Is a book coming? What what what's what's your deal? What's I am working on a book. I'm working on some other stuff too that I cannot talk about yet. Um, but possibly Janae and MJ part two in 2022. We can talk about that shit then. <laughs> look, look I just invited myself PR back. <laughs> pitching the part two. I see what you did there. I see I invited myself right back here. Coming back. This was, she's like, this was all right. I will come back to your show. Uh, any any trips planned? I mean, you just got back from, from Burgundy and you're in New York, but like any any trips planned for 2022? Yeah, I'm going to Spain in March and then Greece in June. Where in Spain? Is this a wine trip or just a... It's a wine trip. So Ribera. Ribera? Yeah. Okay. You're not, you're not a fan of Spanish wines? You got a weird look. You're like, yeah, Ribera. Oh, that's yeah. so funny. I actually don't drink a lot of Spanish wines, uh, but I, I had no idea there was a look on my face. It was a tell. It was totally, don't play poker. Oh, my God. I, I don't. Like, I, yeah, I, I, totally, can, I cannot pretend. Like, I am, like, the worst. <laughs> I cannot pretend about anything. Like, it shows in my face. But um, I do like Ribera wines, which is perfect because I'm like, wow, I got invited to Ribera, mm-hmm. and I get to go to I – like, I like Ribera wines. So I'm going to Ribera in March, and then um, a family trip to Greece – um, in June. So a bunch of my family's going, We're going to Greek cruise. So that'll be fun. Very nice. Very yeah. nice. Very nice. And, uh, <clears throat> what, um, 
would you say is the most memorable bottle of wine you've ever had in your life? I know oh it's a God. tough one, but that is very tough. But you are very you have a very keen mind. Mm, thank you. So I appreciate that. You might be drunk, which is why you're saying not that. at all. <laughs> we, split, we split the bottle between three people. <laughs> The most memorable bottle of wine I've ever had. Um, so memorable, I can't even remember. Like, I, I, I don't even know. <laughs> so memorable, I can't remember. <laughs> nice. <laughs> right, I know, right? I, 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 I don't know. Let me back um, up then. Let me ask you a question. So yeah. what was it? Was that bottle of Druine, uh Burgundy? Was it just a Burgundy? Do you remember what? Do you remember what that bottle was though? I don't. I just remember okay. it being, having the red foil, yep. Joseph Druin, like Maison Joseph Druin, and I don't remember if it was like you know Marcinet or I don't remember what village. I just remember it being like, whoa, what the hell is this? So I was the the two wines that got me into wine, which were like you know mm-hmm. that Druin and then Tarlant, obviously memorable bottles, but. Um, I could also say like Tarlant Bam is a memorable bottle because sure. it's just so interesting. And that like, again, that torture porn acidity was just like, whoa, screaming you at me. You heard it first here. <laughs> torture porn. Um, <laughs> Not my words, Michael Cruz's words, <laughs> which I thought was like the perfectly <laughs> apropos <laughs> descriptor. All right. So now oh. I'm going to make another question because <laughs> questions are a dime a dozen, particularly when I'm talking. Um What's your dream bottle? What bottle do you want to have that you haven't had yet? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Good question. Um, mm. A Le Pen would be great. Ooh. Yeah. Um, Pomerol, for those who don't know. Definitely Pomerol. Um, again, again, another Pomerol, Petrus. I don't think I've ever had Petrus. Had it. Ooh, man, stop and, and rubbing you know it in. And you're going to have I'm, it at that party, aren't you? It's going to be at that party. Ooh, okay, I guess I got to stay here another there week. There is no doubt. What is up? That there will be Petrus at that party. Damn, okay, this guy, this guy right here. Um, I guess my I'm drink- not a psalm, I just drink a lot of really good shit. I'm not a psalm, I, I just, just drink, drink a lot. lot. <laughs> That's exactly where that comes from. Excellent. Exactly. Um, I, get, I would I, I would love to have Romani Conti, like actual Romani Conti. <laughs> had it. I, so I've never had, it. I've never had Romani Conti. I've had like Latash sure. and I've had the Eschazos right. and I've had Romani Saint Vivant, but yep. I've never had Richebourg and I've never had Romani Conti. Obviously, I've never had Montmartre. Um, it's super scarce. But if I could have Romani Conti, that would probably be. A dream bottle. I love it. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Boom. Boom. Janae is dancing. Always. Oh, my God. Do you know Marquita? Marquita who? Mar- All black people don't know each other. Is know, she black? She's black. See? And she's from Chicago. <laughs> Wait, whoa, whoa. Well, she's from Chicago. <laughs> And she dances all the time. That's why I thought you two no. might be homegirls. That's all I'm saying. No, I don't like, know a dancing uh, Marquita. Uh, 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 you, y'all need to, I'm going to connect you two because y'all need to know each other because you are both from Chicago. So. It's so funny. Yeah. Is she into wine? She's a psalm. I don't know a dancing psalm Marquita. She's at Tech Psalm right now, matter of fact. Oh, cool. But Very go cool. back and listen to her episode. Again, you don't listen to the podcast. Ooh, but I love you. Ooh, um, ooh. 
<laughs> she's Ooh. definitely coming back because the fact that we can I can throw barbs at her like that and she just laughs is so much fun. Uh, Janae, um, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, making this happen. Um, tell people where they can find you, how they can be a part of your journey. Oh, thank you guys. Um, you can read my stories at winemag.com and in Wine Enthusiasts print publication every now and then. Um, on Instagram, I am Champagne and Reservations. Um, and it's me sitting on a very expensive bed with a really expensive <laughs> glass of champagne in my hand. So you'll know it's me. Um, and thank you so much for listening and for having me. Oh my God, this was a ton of fun. Yes, um, we're and by the way, this is number fifty, y'all. This is Yay. the fiftieth episode of the Black Wine Guy Experience. I'm actually tearing up here. I cannot believe oh, that that we have come this far. Congratulations! And literally uh, thirteen months. That's amazing. Fifty episodes in. Um, so thank you for being a part of this special episode. Thank you for having me on oh my such God. a special episode. Until the next time, cheers to the Mavericks. That is her. Philosophers, that is her. Deep thinkers, that is her. And definitely a wine drinker. You guys, it's your boy MJ. Thank you so much. 50 episodes. Can't wait for the next 50. Love you guys. Peace. Peace. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something. You had some fun while you were here. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list. 